0: Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at ClassicCity.org. Morning, guys. Uh, Before we dive in, will y'all pray with me, please? Jesus, Lord, um, I pray that today you would fill us... um, with your spirit. God, I pray that you would give us the love for you and the faith in you even when it calls us to lose. I pray, God, that we would uh, consider your kingdom worth losing our own kingdoms for. I pray that you just fill us all up with that spirit in your name. Amen. Well again, good morning. Uh, today we're gonna be continuing with our series for the summer. We're doing a series called Profiles. We're uh, doing a little bit, something a little bit different. Um, these sermons have been a little bit more narrative. Uh, we're trying to internalize the testimonies of the saints who've gone before us. In Hebrews chapter 13, seven through eight, it says, uh, remember your forefathers. The, that word forefathers, it can literally mean mentor, but it can also mean like the people in scripture, the people of faith who came before you. It says, remember your forefathers. Those who spoke the words of life to you, consider the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. It says you need to internalize the testimonies, internalize, don't just know them, but internalize the stories of those who come before you in faith, especially those in scripture, because Jesus Christ, the same Christ who moved in and through them, the same Christ who called them, is moving in and through and attempting to call you today. So this is the philosophy of of this sermon series. We're looking at these profiles, and again, not just trying to know them, but internalize the narratives. Um, Today, uh, we are diving into the profile of Prince Jonathan, the man who would be king. Uh, And there is a question uh, we're gonna be diving into. Jonathan's life was defined by one question, one absolutely terrifying and awesome question that defined his life, uh, and that we're told in scripture defines all of ours. Uh, Do you love the Lord enough to lose for him? Do you love the Lord enough to lose for him? Do you have the faith to lose? And uh, in scripture, it's it's really interesting. What Jesus said defines our love for him and our relationship with him. It's really interesting. Jesus said, if you really wanna know what will define your relationship with me, it will not be your victories, it will be your losses. It won't be the times when God calls you to victory or to breakthrough. In Hebrews chapter 11, that passage that um, Pastor Lisa, mom, uh, was, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, was uh, sharing in the inspiration today. It, it shares about saint after saint after saint. Remember, remember your forefathers, profiles, the whole theme of this sermon series. And it marks them not for their victories, but for their, by the world standards, failures. It says that by the world standards, their lives were tragedies, failures, losses, And then it says this, it says, but the world was not worthy of them because they weren't trying to build their own kingdom, they were looking to a kingdom that was already established by God. And so again, we are left with this question, Jesus, our Christ, when he was going to the cross, when he was gonna do his great work, his great work which was losing, his life, he said, if you want to follow me, the word Christian literally means Christ follower. If you want to be a Christian, he said, the mark of it will be for you to take up your cross. And So again, over and over and over again, again scripture tells us your life with Christ is not marked by when he uses you for victory. Your relationship with Christ is not measured. The depth of your relationship with Christ has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with your prestige. It has everything to do with whether you are really willing to lose for him when he calls you to a moment of loss. And this question is what defined Jonathan's life. Uh, Prince Jonathan, uh, he was the first prince of Israel, some context surrounding his life. He was the the first prince of Israel. He was the firstborn son of Israel's first king, Saul. Uh, When uh, the people of Israel were living in in Canaan in the promised land, there was a lot going on, and uh, the people cried out for a king, and God finally listened to them. He said, this isn't gonna end well, but I'll do it anyway. And, And so he anointed Saul as king, and when Saul was anointed king, he was told his job, like his job description, if you will, uh, was to uh, go to war against eni- uh, Israel's enemies, the people of God's enemies. He said, uh, there are two jobs set before you. First, protect my people. And then he was commissioned, there was this commission, this mission that was given to the people of God when they first entered Canaan. He said, these people who are here, who don't fear me, who don't honor me, are going to lead my people to temptation. They're gonna abuse them. They're gonna destroy them. So get them out of the land. Go to war and get them out of of the land. And so Saul was anointed king, and when he was anointed king, the prophet Samuel literally told him, God told him through Samuel, you have two jobs, protect my people, push the enemies out of the land. But as soon as he took over, uh, two things happened. For first and foremost, as soon as he took over, Jonathan became prince. He would have been somewhere between the age of 11 and 13, and from the age of 11 to 13, Jonathan immediately became Uh, It was instantly started to be groomed for the crown and for the kingdom. His entire life, his entire identity was built around crown and his soon-to-be kingdom. He was going to become the king. And everything, all of his investment, all of his time, all of his thought was put into being groomed to take over for his father. The second thing that happened when Saul became king uh, was instantly everyone started to realize that Saul, uh, Saul's kingship was going to be rough. Saul struggled ultimately um, with doubting God. He, he doubted God's character. He doubted God's love, love for him. He doubted God's power. Uh, and because of that, he was constantly struggling with fear and insecurity. He was just drowned in fear and insecurity, and the first time we see Jonathan is right in the middle of this situation, crowned or or heir to the crown under his father, who is chosen by God, but his father is struggling with fear and insecurity. Uh, The Philistines, uh, Israel's enemies, they start coming in again, they're in the land, as long as they're in the land, they're gonna abuse, they're gonna attack, they're gonna destroy. And, And so they start raiding and pillaging And Saul knows it's his job to gather the army, so he gathers the army up, and then he goes and hides in a cave. (laughs) He hides away in a cave, and as he hides away in the cave, he says the reason, he tells the army, the reason we're hiding in the cave, it's not because I'm scared, uh, we're hiding in the cave so we can get clarity for when God wants us to go to war. We're gonna pray for a sign from God, and when he gives the sign, then we'll go to war. As a side note, again, today we're talking about Jonathan, but you can never understand Jonathan without understanding Saul. Uh, As a side note, one of the things we see right here from the get-go, again, is this prayer for clarity. And one of the first things I realized when when I first went into vocational ministry, the, the first thing I was ever put in charge of was a prayer ministry. Prayer ministry defined a lot of of my walk with the Lord in vocational ministry. And and as soon as I became a prayer minister, I realized something. Uh, Since going into vocational ministry, I have not had a single week of my life where I have not had someone send a prayer request to me for clarity. (laughs) And that's not a bad thing. Praying for clarity is actually a wonderful thing if you mean it. But most of the time, this has just been what I've encountered, I see it over and over again. Most of the time when someone comes to me praying for clarity, when I start asking them questions and contextualizing their situation, they have already been told by God what they're called to do. He has already said what they're called to do. They know deep down in their hearts, if they really were to test their heart and their emotions and their soul, they know exactly what God has said they're not praying for clarity and they don't want me to pray to God for them for clarity. What they're really praying for is ease, painlessness, a faithless decision. Most of the time when people claim that they are praying for clarity, they are proclaiming with their lives and their actions that they're really just afraid and they want God to take away all of the risk but you have to lose to follow Jesus. And if you're asking God to get rid of the call to lose your security, to let go of your control, to follow him, his answer will be a quiet, gentle, irrevocable no. You are never allowed to follow Christ without faith. And so we see Saul praying, praying for clarity in the cave while God has prophetically already through a prophet told him your job is to protect my people and while he's praying in the cave for a sign, his people are being pillaged and killed. And while he's praying for God to just make it clear what he's supposed to do, the armies of the enemies of God are marching all around him and yet he's still praying for clarity and it's in the middle of this decision, this quiet almost subconscious decision that we first see Prince Jonathan because Jonathan chooses to leave the cave. And right from the get-go, the first moment we see Jonathan, he's already begun to lose. He's already begun to lose his security, his control. He goes out of the cave to not wait for God to make it easy, but to go out and seek God's will actively. This is what we see when Jonathan leaves the cave. We first see him in uh, 1 Samuel 14. This is 1 Samuel 14, starting in verse six. Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come, let's go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. So Jonathan said then, Behold, we'll cross over to those men. We will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come down to you, then we will stand in our place. We will not go up to them. But... If they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hands and this will be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines, God's enemies, said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've been hiding themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed, or some of your translations will say insulted, Jonathan and his armor bearer. They said, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, his armor bearer behind him, and they all fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, with Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed some 20 men within about a half furrow's length. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field among all the people, the garrison. Even the raiders trembled and the very earth shook and their camp was thrown into great panic. The first time we see Jonathan, we're shown three things about this young man. First, he's already outright, he's already lost his security, but he has fearless faith. He knows God's character intimately. Nothing can stop God. If it's for his glory, and again, God's glory, God's kingdom is Jonathan's priority. He says, if it's for God's glory, he'll do it. So he goes out with fearless faith. The second thing we see about him is he has Amazing wisdom, like peerless wisdom. Before Solomon was ever born, Jonathan already starts quoting the Proverbs and saying, hey, if, uh, if they fear God, if, if when we go to them they fear God, like let's test their hearts. We will not fight them, we will not go up to them, but if they don't fear God, let's go for it and give him glory. Peerless wisdom, you can see into the souls of people. And the last thing we're shown about him is that when he is filled with the Spirit of God, as he goes out, as he loses his safety, God's Spirit fills him up, and just like we were talking about Samson last week, just like Samson, he becomes a one-man army. Uh, The image, uh, it's kinda hard when you read the Old Hebrew, it's it's, it's hard to understand the image, right, this translation from the Old Hebrew, of what it would have looked like. Jonathan is somewhere between the age of 13 and at most 18, he's a teenager. This teenage boy, some, somewhere between 13 and probably about 15, climbs up a cliff, jumps up off the cliff, draws a sword, and in one motion, 20 men are on the ground. It's like something out of a Marvel movie, it's like a superhero movie. All of a sudden, he is fighting with his back against a cliff, he is fighting an entire army, and he's winning. They can't stop this teenage boy. This is the greatest army of the world at the time, and they can't stop a teenager with a short sword. Again, it's it's incredible. It says literally the spirit of God was filling him up so much the earth trembled under his feet. The earth is shaking under the Holy Spirit that is in this young man. This is Jonathan, the man who would be king. He's presented as this ideal candidate. And God loves him and loves to use him because he loves God and God's kingdom and his glory is all he thinks about. He uh, wins this battle against this entire army, this one-man army, Prince Jonathan, the man who would be king. And then something happens. This is the first crossroads, right? Jonathan has now lost all security and God is using him. And this choice brings him to the second crossroads. See, while he is out fighting a battle, his father is still praying for a sign. And all of a sudden, in the cave, they feel the cave shake under the feet of Jonathan as God is moving. So the men, so Saul and the other men, they peek their heads out the cave and they see the army that they are supposed to be fighting melting away from this one lone figure in the distance. And Saul realizes, I'm about to look like a fool. I'm about to look like a coward. We gotta, get, we gotta get everyone good. We gotta go out. We gotta go out and join whoever this one person is. So he gets the army going and they move out and then he does something that your, your, your Bible will call, he makes a rash oath. Again, Saul is trying to cover his shame. He's trying to cover his mistake. And so to cover up his mistake, to make sure people know, oh, he, he really is God's man, even though he hasn't been following him at all, He makes what's called a rash oath. There's this word um, we've forgotten called masochism. It's when you try and use a spiritual discipline to control God instead of doing it to get close to him. And he does one of these rash oaths, these masochistic moves. And he says, we're going into battle, we're gonna fast, and so no one in the middle of this battle, this day-long battle, no one eats, no one drinks. So of course... As the men are trying to catch up to this fleeing army, dehydrated and exhausted and with no food, they can't keep up, they can't catch up and they're not able to completely destroy the enemy. They're not able to really solidify their victory because of Saul's rash oath. And so again, to cover up his fear, to cover up his shame, to cover up his list increasing list of mistakes, Saul says, okay, well, it must be. He makes a proclamation in front of the army. We weren't able to catch up with them, which means someone must have eaten or drank something today. He tries to make an excuse for himself. And he says, if anyone's eaten or drank anything, we're gonna kill him, because it's their fault, their fault, not my fault, their fault we weren't able to do the work today. Meanwhile, Jonathan is still chasing after the Philistines, wiping them out single-handedly. And he's so busy, so far ahead of the rest of the army, he doesn't hear any of this. Because remember, he's outside the cave when this oath gets made. He knows nothing of this. In fact, he's so far outside the cave, he's so far ahead as the Philistines try and get into the cover of the forest, he notices something. Just like God provided manna for his people in the desert to sustain them in their journey, he looks up and he sees that dripping off the trees is honey. In the ancient world, honey was like the, the Gatorade of the ancient world. It was the ultimate hydrator, right? It's sweet, so it's filled with electrolytes. It's liquid, so it hydrates you. It's, it's, it'll, it's like drinking water, it's liquid, It was thick, so it would fill you up quick, but it was light, so you weren't gonna get sick running around filled with it. It was the perfect thing to eat to keep going. It was the perfect thing to drink to keep going. But there was a fast that had gotten made. Jonathan didn't know that, though. So he starts eating and drinking some of the honey. It says his eyes are bright, and he just keeps running after the Philistines all day, but eventually he realizes the army can't, can't catch up. He looks around, realizes I'm still alone. Something's happening. So he goes back to the Israelite camp just in time to hear his father Saul saying, if anyone's eaten anything, we're gonna kill him. And and Saul does this, this uh, traditional test. The Hebrews had this prayer test when they were trying to discern uh, an answer. They'd call it umen and thumen. It's kind of like flipping a, at you Ask the question of the Lord, you flip the coin and you get your answer, right? So who's guilty? Flip the coin, you, right? Except for the question that Saul asked isn't who's guilty. He doesn't ask who's to blame. The question he asks is who has eaten or drank anything today? And of course, Jonathan has eaten and drank exactly what God gave him to eat and drink. And so this prince who should be hailed as the hero, who should get get all the attention for being so faithful. God has been using him all day. He is a one-man army, comes back to his people, comes back to his kingdom, comes back to his father, and when they flip the uman and thuman, the question again that they ask is, who's been eating and drinking? And of course, Jonathan gets identified. And he's faced with this decision, right? His father is the anointed king. His father is the unifier of the people of God. He can justify himself, rightly so. He's been doing all the work. God has been choosing him. He's been the righteous one. He's the only one who's done any work all day. He can justify himself or he can keep the people of God united under God's anointed one. He can break up the body or he can take all the shame on himself and put his life at risk. And so his only response is, yes, Father, I ate. If I must die, then let me die. In that moment, Jonathan loses for the second time for the anointing of God. He loses all of his honor in the eyes of all of the nation that he's supposed to be leading. He has lost his security, now he has lost all his honor. At the end of the passage, someone, it was probably his armor bearer, brings up, oh wait, he was the one ahead, and they're like, oh, he was ahead, and so they cover for Saul, and they you know, kind of get rid of the, the killing part, but nothing gets rid of the shame. The one person who should be honored is the one person who takes all the blame in front of the entire nation. And so now in front of the nation and in all practical ways, Jonathan has lost his safety for the kingdom of God. He has lost his honor for the sake of God's anointing, for the unity of the body. But God's not done. In chapter 16, uh, Saul continues to fail and continues to fail, so much so that God says, I'm going to choose another, I'm just gonna go ahead and anoint another to take over for you, so everyone knows who to go to as you keep failing, because everyone is gonna know who's taking over for you when you're done, and everyone assumes it's gonna be Jonathan, right? Jonathan is the ideal leader, loves the Lord, knows him intimately, filled with almost supernatural wisdom, like Solomonic wisdom filled with the spirit. He's a one-man army who better to lead God's forces. And yet, when the decision gets made, this random guy named David, the son of Jesse, an upstart, about a year younger, maybe two years younger than Jonathan, gets chosen. He'd been spending years being groomed for the crown, He'd spent years preparing for this. This was what he deserved. This was his birthright. He did everything God asked. He lost everything God called him to lose. And at this third junction, God asked Jonathan again Will you now lose everything you've worked for? Will you lose your rights? Will you lose your work? Will you lose your passion? Will you lose everything that you thought you were preparing for, for my anointing, for my kingdom? David uh, goes before Saul when the Israelites are at war again and says, hey, there's a giant, he's challenging our people, Uh, can we go and fight him? And you guys, most of y'all know the story of David and Goliath. Uh, Saul says, go for it. Most Bible scholars uh, believe this, no one knows this for a fact, because The text doesn't tell us, but most Bible scholars think that Saul actually let David go because he thought in his mind, this is a win-win. If the kid somehow manages to win, we won the battle. But if he loses, there goes my competition. Because the anointing was public. Everyone knew David was anointed over Jonathan. David wins, of course, he comes back, and in chapter 18, we see the first time Jonathan meets this David, meets this guy who's a year or two younger, who he's just been told by God and by everyone else got chosen over him, who doesn't deserve it half as much. David fought one, one little skirmish, yeah, with a champion, but one-on-one. Jonathan was a one-man army, Jonathan defeated thousands of Philistines. David beat one. David was untrained. Jonathan had been groomed for this. And when he meets this man who God chose over him, this is what happens. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 18. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him, loved him as his own soul. So Saul took David into his household and he would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped off the robe that was on him and he gave it to David. Not only that, but also his armor, his sword, his bow, even his belt. And David went out. And was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Some of your translation will say, so David went out. Jonathan gave him everything, so David went out and was successful. Remember, David wasn't trained. Jonathan looks at this man who God and everyone else has just said is taking everything that's yours by right. You've earned this, you were born for this, it's your inheritance and your birthright and we're still giving it to him anyway. And he looks at him and he sees God's spirit in this man and he loves him. He chooses to love the very person who just took everything from him. He loses everything with love. The sign of giving your robe or giving your clothes or covering a person with with what you had on you, it was very symbolic to the Israelites. It was a sign of discipleship. It was a sign of inheritance. It was saying, everything that God has put on me, I now give to you. Jonathan starts to train David up. He starts to equip him. Remember, Saul had just given David a military position, but he didn't give him any armor or weapons. David was totally untrained. He was set up for failure. So Jonathan starts to train and prepare David for the very job he just stole from Jonathan. Can you imagine pouring that much love and care, all your resources, all your time, into defending and fighting for and loving the very person who took everything from you? Jonathan has already lost his safety. He has already lost all of his honor, and now he loses his rights for the anointing of God that God chose to give to someone else. But he hasn't lost everything yet. God is not done. For a number of years, Jonathan becomes this in between between these two guys who are anointed over him. He spends the rest of his days serving David and Saul. He serves David while David is afraid and untrained. He trains him up, disciples him, prepares him, cares for him. And when Saul starts to get jealous and even violent towards David, he protects him, he trains him, he cares for him when David is afraid to face death, when uh, Jonathan, remember, was not afraid to risk his life before his father or shame. But David continues to kind of be a little afraid, be a little scared, so Jonathan in-betweens for him. And as he continues to serve Saul, his father, who has been lost to his fear, so much so that it says he becomes demon-possessed, Saul just becomes filled with demonic darkness. He becomes a vessel for the evil one. Jonathan continues to serve and kind of be there in-between in this role of being the shadows of these two anointed men the role of being the in between finally comes to a head as Saul's jealousy and David's fear kind of clashes and Jonathan finally is forced to confront his father and he gets he confronts David and then he confronts his father and it blows up in his face in what becomes his last test will you lose this is what happens Jonathan goes before his father in 1 Samuel chapter 20, or in verse 30, and this is what his father says to him. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, you have no honor left. Do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? You have no more rights. You've lost your inheritance." and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Hear that one more time. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom, your kingdom, will be established. Therefore, send him, bring him to me, and he will surely die. Just send him to me. I'll put the blood on my hands. You won't be sinful. The last temptation of Jonathan. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, but why should he be put to death? What's his sin? So Saul hurled his spear to strike him, no safety. So Jonathan knew his father was determined to put David to death, and Jonathan rose from the table in a fierce anger. He ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David and that his father had shamed David. This is the last test of Jonathan. His father is demon-possessed and Satan, through his father, looks him in the eyes and says, don't you know? He speaks a lie that is so close to the truth. Don't you know if David lives, your kingdom will will never be established. You will have no kingdom. You will have nothing. You will be forgotten as nothing more than a supporting character to me and David. But Jonathan looks back at his father and the demon possessing him and asks the simple question, what's his sin? But what about God? But what about God? But God... His kingdom, he completely lets go of for the sake of God's kingdom. Shortly after, uh, he saves David's life one last time. He ensures that David's line and David's kingdom will be established. And then. When his father calls him to it, he goes to war knowing his father's demon-possessed, knowing God is no longer with his father, knowing he's going to lose, knowing that he's going to die. And sure enough, Prince Jonathan, the man who would be king, dies pierced with arrows very shortly after. By the world's standards, it's a tragedy. He loses everything. But because... He ensures that God's anointed kingdom is established because he ensures that David survives and that his line survives. There's another king from David's line who comes into the world. His name is Jesus. Because Jonathan gives up the establishment of his own kingdom, he is responsible for the establishment of the very kingdom of God And again, Satan's lies are very close to the truth, they're very subtle. He was told that if he lost, if he gave up his kingdom, his kingdom would never be established, but Jonathan's home kingdom, remember Hebrews 11, they're looking, Christians are looking for a kingdom that we don't build but that's already been established by God because of his sacrifice the very kingdom of God gets established. His kingdom, which can never be taken from him, is built. And this is what it means to love the Lord enough to lose for him. And the same God who called Jonathan is calling us today, do you love him enough to lose for him? Will you lose your security? Will you stop praying for clarity? when you don't mean it? Will you step out of the cave? Will you lose your security to ensure God's glorified? Will you lose your honor, even when God is the one using you, even when you deserve all the credit? Do you need to justify yourself or are you trying to give God the glory? Will you lose your honor? Will you be shamed for Christ? Will you lose your rights Are you working for something so that you deserve it, or are you working for God's purposes? Will you work enough that others would inherit? Jesus said it this way. True believers work for something that's not their own. And Christians who come after someone who truly loves the Lord reap what they don't sow because someone else did the harvest. Will you sow what you might not reap? And will you lose your kingdom that God's would be further established on the earth? Will you love the Lord enough to lose for him? Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that you would give us the spirit of Jonathan. I pray that we would love you enough to lose for you, Lord. God, I pray um, that you'd give us that spirit that you gave to Paul where he said, I count everything else a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. I pray, Lord, yeah, that as we lose, we would consider you the treasure. Lord, and that we would find you and know that you're worth it. In your name we pray, amen.